Lord, we just want to stay in a moment of nearness to the cross here before we move into the Word. I just pray that you would reveal your Son this morning. It's so important that we see Jesus. It's so important that we stay near the cross where we die and Jesus died. So I pray that you would manifest your Son, Father, among us. And as we turn to the Word now and spend a few minutes bathing our minds with it, make us clean, make us strong, make us humble, make us happy, make us mighty in the Word for the sake of the kingdom's advance, We pray these things now in the name of your precious, crucified, and risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews, the New Testament, a book that we're working our way through slowly, as long as God gives us a mind to. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We spoke last week from the first two verses or so of this paragraph, and today we will speak mainly from verses 3 and 4. But let's read it together. You listen while I read here from the New American Standard Version. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable or proved Firm, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, the point of that paragraph is very plain, I think, namely that there is no escape for those who neglect a great salvation. You see that in verse 3? He asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, what's the answer to that question? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is... No way. There is no way to escape. There is no how. We cannot escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Now that means that this paragraph here is a tremendously sobering word for the world and for the church. Because you know a lot of people who neglect this salvation. And I want to ask you, not pointing our fingers at anybody else, we, do we neglect this salvation? How are we doing? Do we give sustained, serious attention to the greatness of our salvation? Do we love it? Do we 
think about it and meditate on it? Do we weave it into all the lesser matters of our lives? How are we doing when it comes to not neglecting a great salvation? There's a greatness about our salvation and there should be a fitting and appropriate sense of greatness in the mind and the heart in response to the greatness of the salvation. How are we doing? We all know that vast numbers of people in our city neglect this salvation. And if that goes on, if that neglect goes on, there is no escape from the judgment of God according to this verse 3. That's a very sobering word. This is a serious business, the Christian life. Sometimes you just need to stop and say, life is serious. The first night I spoke at Bethlehem Baptist Church, July 1980, my first evening message was entitled, Life is Not Trivial. This is your life. I took a text from Deuteronomy. This is your life. Choose life. Christianity is not trivial. It is extremely serious business. Not, don't confuse the word serious with sour or glum. Serious has to do with intensity in pursuit of something. And it does not say here, don't neglect your arthritis, or don't neglect your dandelions, or don't neglect your spinach. It's not a negative thing he's calling us to neglect. At least for me, spinach is negative. And dandelions are negative, and arthritis will be negative. He's not saying, make sure you spend a lot of time thinking about those negative, painful things in your life. It's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying... Don't neglect your salvation. Don't neglect your steak dinners. Don't neglect your butterfinger blizzards. Don't neglect your night skies full of stars in the boundary waters. Don't neglect your cozy warm bed at night. Don't neglect the smiles of that new little baby. This is not a hard command. Don't neglect your joy. And it's deadly serious. Christians, Christians are people who are in blood earnest about their joy. We will gouge out our eyes in obedience to Jesus lest we lose our joy if we have to. So don't mistake me. When I say this text beckons you to a serious way of living, that I am beckoning you to a sad way of living. I'm saying, let's really get serious about joy. Salvation means joy. We are saved from hell, saved from death, saved from Satan. That's joy, saved into God, into heaven, into hope. Salvation is all positive. 
So when he says, don't neglect this, it's like old Jeremy Taylor's statement, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things. There will be no escape for those who neglect their joy. Serious business. And he's got to talk like that because there's a lot of suicidal competitors to our salvation when it comes to joy. A lot of them. Hundreds of them. A lot of competitors being offered. Come on. This, this is what will really save you from boredom. This is what will really save you from insignificance. This is what will really save you from poverty. Come on, come on. And at that moment, we need to hear a word, don't neglect this, this joy, this cataract, an avalanche of goodness flowing out from God through the cross of Jesus Christ. At that moment, we need to hear loud and clear, come back from the suicidal competitors of salvation. So it's serious, serious business. Don't neglect your great salvation. Don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven. Don't neglect being accepted. Don't neglect being strengthened by God. Don't neglect being helped and guided by God. Don't neglect the love of the cross where your sins were nailed there forever. Don't neglect the free gift of righteousness that comes to you by faith so that you can clothe yourselves with it and walk right into the presence of a holy God and meet a smile rather than a frown of wrath. Don't neglect a risen Christ who's alive today and who offers his fellowship to you this morning for your friendship forever. Don't neglect the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't neglect the fellowship of the saints. Don't neglect all the good things that are summed up in this word, great salvation. That's the message this morning. Beware of neglecting such a great salvation because to neglect it, there's no escape. There's no escape. It's very serious business. The opposite of neglecting, a little rehearsal from last week, the opposite of neglecting is found in verse 1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And what we have heard is this great salvation. That's what we talked about last week. Now this week, I want to move to the end of the paragraph and focus on verses 3 and 4 and ask the question, what are these verses here for? How do they buttress the statement that it's a contemptible thing to neglect our great salvation? And the answer is, these verses are designed not so much to show that our salvation is great, but that our salvation is true. There are two reasons why you might neglect something. One is, you look at it and it's not great. And you say, well, it's not great. I'm not interested. And so you turn to what you feel is great. And you give yourself to that. That's one reason. The other reason is, you look at something and it might look great, but you have reason to believe it isn't true. It's a, it's a dream great. And so you turn away from that too. 
So we need two things to happen. We need to be persuaded that it's a great salvation so that we turn away from all the lesser things in life. And believe me, life is one colossal decision of what to neglect. At least my life feels that way. The ministry, nobody's following me around during the day. Tell me what to do. Sometimes I come to the end and I say, oh, I wish I had somebody. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Hour by hour. Lord, just come. What book to read? What person to call? What thing to write? What letters to write? What the thousand possibilities in your life and my life. And we make choices to neglect hundreds of them every hour. What people will you not talk to today? What will you not work on today? What will you not read today? What will you not phone today? So, believe me, neglect is very important. It's very important to nail down what you're going to neglect. And it ought to be the lesser things, not the most important things. So you got to decide what's great. And then the second thing is, you have to believe it's true. If it were great and not true in your mind, you would neglect it. And if it were true and not great in your mind... You would neglect it. It needs to be both true and great. These two verses, 3 and 4 of Hebrews 2, are designed to address the latter problem, namely, is it true? Is it true? These are verses about confirmation of the salvation. Let's read them again. Verse 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation... After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, through the Lord, just like the Old Testament message was through angels in verse 2, through the Lord, come back to that. It was confirmed, made firm, solid, you know, trustworthy, made firm to us by those who heard, that is the eyewitnesses who heard the Lord. The apostles. Verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, that is with the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now the point of that paragraph, I mean those two verses, is to say that the great salvation that we should not neglect has been sufficiently confirmed among us so that it is contemptible to neglect it. That's the point of those two verses. Now, this is not an easy thing to deal with. I want to pose a question for you and try to tackle it in the last few minutes here. And the question is, how do you come to a settled, justified conviction about the truth of a testimony? A testimony. Something you didn't see with your own eyes. And even if you saw it with your own eyes, I could ask the same question because you might be deluded. How do you decide when to credit a testimony? Lawyers and judges and juries have to do this all day long down at the Hanman County Courthouse. How do you do that? How does it happen? How does evidence work? Why does one pile of evidence cause one person to be absolutely persuaded he's guilty 
And another pile, I mean the same pile of evidence, cause another person or group to say, not guilty, insufficient evidence. What is it in the mind that works like that? Now what you need to see here first, before we tackle that question head on, is that there are four witnesses in these two verses to the great salvation. Let's just look at them quickly and then pose that question. Number one is God the Father himself in verse three. The wording is important. It says, it was, that is, this great salvation was at the first spoken through the Lord. Now, the speaker here is God the Father. The channel is the Lord. The Lord is the go-between. I know some of your versions don't get it that plain, but that's the way it is because the parallel in verse 2, the same wording, spoken through angels... Here, spoken through the Lord, shows that God is the speaker in both cases. So, witness number one, God the Father spoke a great salvation, which is no surprise because chapter one, verse one, in many and various ways, he spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. And that's what he's doing here. God is speaking salvation through the Son. So the second witness now is the Son. Jesus Christ, the go-between, the mediator. It was at first spoken, namely by God, now through the Lord Jesus. The earthly Jesus as he spoke, as he lived, as he healed, as he cast out demons, as he stilled the storm, as he died, as he rose, as he commissioned, he was being and speaking the great salvation from the Father. So he's witness number two. God the Father leaves his stamp on the testimony. God the Son leaves his stamp on the testimony. And at every stage of the witnessing, we are at a crisis judgment. Will we yield to the validity of the testimony or will we doubt the validity of the testimony? That's the tough question. How do you come to that kind of conviction? Witness number three, verse three, near the end. It, that is the great salvation, was confirmed to us by those who heard. Those who heard what? Answer, the Lord Jesus, as he spoke God's word of salvation. So these are the eyewitnesses or ear witnesses. These are the people who, who heard him teach the Sermon on the Mount, who heard him say, peace be still to the raging sea, who heard him rebuke a fever, who heard him say, move out of here, demons, who heard him commission the apostles after he arose from the dead. These are the eyewitnesses who saw the very Son of God. They had come to this church or these churches of the Hebrews and they had preached and testified. And this writer says, they made the great salvation firm. There's a firmness here on the basis of the eyewitness accounts. So that's, that's number three. Witness number four is God himself again. He will have the first word and he will have the last word. You see that in verse four? God also bearing witness with them, that is with the apostles, the eyewitnesses, both by signs and wonders, 
by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God spoke a salvation into the world. He mediated it through his son, Jesus Christ. His son gathered around him authoritative spokesmen and eyewitnesses and commissioned them to be his witnesses. Now, they go out and preach at churches like this one. They hear that God spoke, the son spoke, the eyewitnesses speak, and they've got three testimonies. And God says, I'll add one more. And he comes in with signs, wonders, miracles, and spiritual gifts poured out on the church. As if to say, it was enough to hear my eyewitnesses, but I will add now another confirming witness of my own. Now, here's the question. What do you do with that? How does that, how do four testimonies like that produce justifiable conviction in the mind? Because there are many people who hear such evidence, such testimony, and they're not persuaded. They don't believe that salvation is real, and they don't believe it's great. But some hear it, and they do believe it's real. And they do believe it's great. And they'll lay down their lives for it. What what happens here? And it's not just a problem with this. It's a problem with every testimony you hear. If God says, I have come to save, you could say, "Ah, maybe that's Satan talking. Or if Jesus says, I am the savior of the world, you could say, you're a megalomaniac. You are really out of it. You are a deluded prophet. You are pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. Or if the eyewitnesses say, we saw him, we saw him. He was risen from the dead. He was a man of love. He was authentic through and through. He was authoritative. Believe him. We saw him. We knew him. We could say, you were hallucinating. It's all a conspiracy. And if God does signs and wonders, there's no problem handle that. Satan can do those, right? Satan does sign, lying signs and wonders. And there's magic in the world. White magic, black magic. So the point, doubt is always possible, right? You, doubt is always an option. So what happens so that genuine, justifiable, valid, Conviction happens in a mind in the face of a witness. How does that work? This is very difficult. And it's not just far away out there. It's right here in this room right now. People battling whether, number one, to believe it's true. And number one, number two, is it great? And yes, we heard a little bit of a testimony. But what do I do with it? What if it doesn't compel me? That's a tough question. I could tell you, for example, try this witness out on you, that yesterday, while I was working on this message, most remarkably, I thought, I hit my little button to get my email, take a break on the computer, and uh, there was a message about a miracle. I could, I could tell you this anyway, that this happened. That a miracle was wrought in Lyon, France. At a restaurant. And you could say, 
Why? Are you just making it up to be a neat illustration for your sermon? Signs and wonders and stuff? I say, huh? Yeah, that's right. I could be making this up. And what can you say? What can you know? Right? It's not easy to decide when to credit a witness. Like John Piper here, telling you this story. Is this true? Or I can say, come on over to my house this afternoon. Let's boot this thing up. I saved it. And we will, we will read this message and it will tell you the story about a man named Ron Cohen who was sitting in an African restaurant in Lyon, France and saw two tables away a man with crutches and his leg bent sort of funny being very jovial with the waitress. So jovial that this evangelist, Ron Cohen, was emboldened to invite him to join him at the table. Would you join us? He could only speak French, so he's through an interpreter. Ask him what happened. And he said he once was a Tour de France cyclist, and he crashed and crushed his knee, and it has been lame ever since, and he's a scheduled for a $16,000 surgery in a few weeks. And when he was probed about his faith, he said, I worship the goddess reason, just like most of us French do. She's been enshrined, and you can see her shrine around the country, reason. And he said, do you mind if I pray for your knee? He got down on his knees, and he put his hand on his knees, And he prayed, and the man watched his knee straighten under his hands. And he laid his crutches aside and stood up, and he walked around the table and began to weep and say, C'est impossible, c'est impossible. And came to the meeting the next night and was resoundingly converted. Now, I can tell you that happened, which... I believe it did. And you could still say, well, it's a conspiracy because the person who told you the story is just trying to spread the idea that those sorts of things happen today when they really don't happen today and make a name for himself or whatever. And I could say, all right, his address is roncohen47 at AOL.com. And that's the man who did the praying writing this afternoon and ask him what happened. And then when he writes you back and says, that's pretty much the way it happened, and he's still holding to the faith, then what are you going to do? Now that, you just, I'm just using that as a contemporary illustration of what the Pharisees were up against when he, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you believe this? He's dead four days. He's dead four days, and Jesus says, come forth! And he walks bound, out of the tomb. And what did these Pharisees do? They plot to kill Jesus. Nothing will persuade some people. Nothing. Which simply raises a tremendously profound question. What is persuasion? What happens in the mind for a valid, justifiable conviction to emerge that's not a leap into the dark, but legitimate. It is not an easy question. This text does not answer the question entirely. I believe it gives a very crucial part of the answer, 
And it's a very simple part, namely, conviction arises justifiably in the heart in proportion to witnesses that are reliable and clustered. So what we have here are four of them. God witnesses, Jesus witnesses, the apostles and the eyewitnesses witness, and then God adds miraculous testimony again. And that's presented to this church, and and this writer says, now you will not escape if you neglect such a great salvation, because that's enough. That's enough. And if they would have said, I don't think it's enough, that's the end of it. What, what can you do? It's just, you wait till you get to heaven and God, hear God say, it was enough. It was enough. It's a pretty scary thing. So let me try to describe in closing the other part of the answer that's not in the text that I'm, I'm going to commend to you in closing that I take from other texts like 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6, or Matthew 11, 27, or Matthew 16, 17, other passages in Scripture that talk about how conviction emerges, rises in the soul. This is difficult. It'll just take three or four minutes, and then we're done. So listen carefully. You have a mind, a heart over here. This is, this say me, John Piper. And you have a witness or two, or three, or four witnesses to something. Could be a great salvation, could be a car accident, or whatever. Somebody saying that they saw your son or your wife cheating on you. You gonna believe them? It's all kinds of testimonies that come to you, and you gotta believe, you gotta decide. False, true. Now what happens? Over here, there needs to be a testimony that is clear about the historical, moral, spiritual contours of the reality that you're testifying to. So if it's a salvation, this testimony needs to describe with as much accuracy and clarity as it can the moral, spiritual beauty and contours of what that salvation is. And if there's a historical component to it, as there is in Jesus Christ, then you need to describe that too. So that the mind, if it's willing and able, can grasp and see what it is. Now, that's what needs to happen out there. Now, in here, this is really crucial, in here, this mind and heart being, there has to be a humility, a cleanness, and a carefulness about the way I'm feeling or thinking about that reality that's being proposed to me. By carefulness, I simply mean you can't be blasé about it. You have to be, you have to orient your mind if it's serious enough and consider carefully what's being said. By clean, I simply mean that the, the places in your mind where that reality is intended to fit, if it is reality, can't be clogged with the gunk of the world. You can't be having alternative allegiances that are all stuffed into these places in your mind where that belongs. If there's a reality out there called Jesus Christ or great salvation, it's designed to fit a mind. Clunk. And if that mind is stuffed with all kinds of falsehoods and deceptions and, and other things, the testimony may be beautiful and it just goes clunk and you say, doesn't persuade me. It's not the problem of the testimony. 
It's all the gunk that's in the crevices where it's supposed to fit. And the third thing is humility, which means there has to be an openness that I might have something new to learn. I might need to change my way of life. I might need to change my whole orientation on the world here. And I might need salvation. If those three things happen in the face of a true testimony, it goes like this. So I brought along a little visual aid for the kids in the first service. They're not in the service, but you're all kids. You like visual aids. Okay. This is my closing illustration. This is a plug and this is a socket. And I want the current of conviction to flow in my mind. And I want it to be real. No, I don't want to believe what's false. I want my convictions to be warranted, justifiable. This uh, socket uh, plug here, if I had had a big hunk of modeling clay, which maybe I'll have another few months for Talitha, but right now I'm out of modeling clay at my house. I would have punked it on there like that. And I would have said, a good witness, God, Christ, the eyewitnesses, the Holy Spirit, preachers, all of you, a good witness will get as much of that off of there as possible so that the, the precise contours of the spiritual reality we're talking about in this great salvation, who Christ is and what He did and what the nature of God is and what the nature of sin is and what the condition of our hearts, all of those things, will get them precise because, look, one of these is a little wider than the other one. Ooh, ooh, that's significant because it's not going to go like this. You press until uh, uh, uh. it won't go until you get that thing positioned just right. So that's the testimony side. Now this is my mind right here, and I'd have clay stuck all over that thing, pushed in these holes and everything, and that's my sinful fallen mind. And some mighty things have to happen. I said there needs to be care, cleanness, and humility. By by cleanness, I mean. The Holy Spirit's got to go to work on our minds. Nobody's coming to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. And he comes in there and he starts digging. And it hurts sometimes. And he digs out all the falsehoods and all the stuff. And you you can't be just kind of pushing yourself up against the ceiling in pride. You have to come down low and humble yourself. And then you carefully have to orient yourself on this broad side here. And when that happens, there's nothing in the illustration about dropping the cord. When that happens, I, this, this may be inadequate to you. It feels inadequate to me, frankly, because I feel like I'm up against one of the biggest problems in the world. Namely, how faith comes about that is justifiable. Because you, you can doubt. And there's nothing I could say that would not keep some of you from saying, I just don't buy it. And then, that I exist here. I couldn't persuade some philosophers of that. So what happens? This mind is cleaned, humbled, rightly oriented. This testimony is clear concerning the historical, spiritual, moral dimensions of the reality testified to. And when a mind prepared like that and a testimony prepared like that come together, and it might be happening right now in this room. It might be. 
I pray that it is. There, all I know is to say, this happens in the mind. Coherence, harmony. And you say, yes, and you're saved. What else can we say? And I don't believe that that is blind leap in the dark. I'm insisting on a very good testimony over here. And I'm insisting on some clarity and cleanness and humility over here. This is not believe anything you want to believe. I'm talking about the ultimate explanation for why one person yields to a testimony and another doesn't is that there's a sense of fitness here with the reality here that causes it to go and the current flows. And then the current becomes an ongoing witness to the reality of the power. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, we realize that we're right on the brink of something extraordinary that might be happening right here in our midst. Some people who have struggled maybe all their life with whether to yield to the testimony of the greatness of the salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray that for me and all of us, you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, would be orienting our minds aright, cleansing our minds, and humbling our minds so that the all-sufficient testimony that we have in the Word would fit our minds and we would believe. We'll be here at the front to pray if any of you want to pray about those kinds of things or anything else God might be doing. Why don't we stand for a benediction? Hmm. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.